Amen. Hey, this morning we're in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If you want to go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word, you can also find it on the screens as we begin to make our way through. Now, Chris spoke last week. He finished out Colossians chapter 2 for us and, and had this really easy passage. I don't know why he was complaining uh, there in 20 through 23. But what you'll notice as we get into chapter 3 is we have to really go all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 12 to get a sense of what Paul is talking about here and help us to understand and be able to close out this loop. Be able to close out this loop. But before we do that, when when you look at this passage, one of the things you're going to observe is that there are a couple of commands given in 1 and 2, and we don't get the reason for why. We don't get the reason for why we're supposed to do this until we get into 3 and 4. So if you're a person who says, I won't do it unless you give me a compelling reason, just know we're going to get there, you're just going to have to wait a moment. So we won't give you a compelling reason until we get into verses 3 and 4. But nevertheless, the command Paul gives to us in verses 1 and 2. And so I, I, I'm sure like you, uh, I'm sure like, uh, like me, you as well have friends who kind of exist on the poles of opinion, really in any topic. And so you have people that like cats, and then you have good people. You have people who eat bananas and enjoy them, and then you have rational folks. And, and then in terms of kind of where we are in, in this moment politically, where we are in this moment ideologically, you begin to see your friendships kind of take form, and you say, man, I, I didn't realize they were so strong in this way. I didn't realize they had such a strong opinion in this, or, I, I, oh my goodness, I can't believe they don't have an opinion in this. Because I grew up living a little bit of all over the world, uh, I have friends that have settled in a variety of places, and, and their opinions are so incredibly diverse. And so I've got a friend of mine, uh, a girl I went to junior high school and part of elementary school with that lives out in California, and she wants to defund everyone. She wants to give everything for free. She thinks the world needs to be burned down, and once it's burned down, then presumably she gets to pick kind of the the kind of people that get to live in the world. Uh, Coincidentally, I think she's also a cat lover. (laughs) I don't know. And so then I have uh, friends that are all the way on the other side, and, and some of these are, are folks that we all went to school together, and they're insanely conservative. I mean, just, just, just rabidly conservative, and, and their vision and their construction of how the world should go and the right things, that my friend out on, on, uh, in the West Coast, she could never live in that world. She could never exist in that reality. And both groups are vying for their vision of not just our country, but their vision of the world. And here Christians are in the midst of this, and I think we have Christians that find themselves being politically left and politically right, but as Christians, the the, the question is, man, what do we do in the midst of these things? What are our our energies meant to be spent on? What should our thoughts be preoccupied with? And in some sense, the Apostle Paul gives to us today a way forward. He charts for us today a course ahead, and I think it's hopeful because it radically reorients our hearts and it causes our minds not to be dismayed when we look to the left and the right and we say, oy vey, what's going on? But we find ourselves focusing on Him who is our hope, Him who holds our future secure, in Him and Him alone who rules and reigns righteously. Amen? Thank you for the yeah. Look at what Paul writes. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. 
For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now flip back to chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul gives us both of these ideas. Chapter 2 and verse 12, the apostle Paul says, he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. And so we have this identity with Jesus in, in the burial with his baptism. We have this identity with Jesus in his resurrection. So in, in chapter 2 and verse 12, he gives us both pictures of it. In chapter 2 and verse 20, he gives, gives us just this death aspect. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And so what we see Paul rolling out in, in verses 20 through 23 is this understanding that there is nothing we can do to be holy. There's nothing we can do to be holy. There's nothing, in essence, that we must do to be holy because he has made us holy in Christ. And this is great and glorious news, right? This is great and glorious news. And so because we have died with him, we've also been raised with him. And on the basis of these things, he has made us holy. So if you're a believer and follower in Jesus Christ, if you believe that God sent his son to live a perfectly holy life, to die on a cross, to be raised from the dead, and if you united your hope in him if you say your salvation is found in Jesus then today you have hope for holiness found in the person of Jesus realized in the life that you currently live today but what a bunch of holy people do what, what then do we do on the basis of these things? That's what he says. And, and you might even insert the word here instead of right. Since, which is how the NIV and others translate it. Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Now first I want to address the issue of what it looks like to seek after something. Now Paul doesn't just say kind of haphazardly go through your life and, and occasionally give yourself to this investment, to this exercise in this expenditure of energy. No, when he writes the idea and he says that you are to seek after this, he gives us a sense that this is to be the constant uh, direction of our life. It's the constant outpouring of our energy. This needs to be the overwhelming thing that we are caught up day in and day out doing. In essence, for Christianity, there is no off-season. There's no day of waking up and saying, ah, I don't really know if I want to seek the things that are above. I think maybe I'll just put that off for Tuesday. I don't know if I really want to seek the things that are above. Maybe I'll just put that off for Wednesday. I don't know if I want to seek the things that are above. Maybe I'll just put this off until there's not so much pressing in my life. Christian. The way we see this and the way this unfolds, because you are in Christ, because he has raised you up with him, you are to seek the things that are above. But the question kind of becomes, what in the world are we seeking? We get the sense that, that, that it seems to be important. Maybe you're even beginning to buy into the idea that you should seek after these things, but what then are they? And it's decidedly important because he uses this same phrase in verse 2. So the things that are above. Flip over to Revelation 21. I want to kind of get at it through, uh, through a different way. Now certainly we would agree and certainly we would believe that Christ rules and reigns with God currently seated, seated in heaven. But we await this future reality. We await uh, this, this cosmic unfolding of things that our God is going to bring about when he sends his son again. 
And Revelation 21 gives us this picture. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God, God himself will be with them as their God. Now listen to what he's going to do. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things are gone. Amos chapter 5 and verse 24 says, But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. When we begin to think of the things that are above, we recognize that we see them most readily by what their failed anemic versions are here and now. We begin to think of, of what it looks like for us to seek the things that are above. We're seeking justice. We're seeking mercy. We're seeking love. We're seeking charity. And recognize this, that this doesn't get to be a passing phase for us. That when we see injustice perpetrated against somebody else, then, then, then our response that kind of wells up within us is, man, we want justice for them. No, we should always want justice for everyone. Why? Because in seeking the things that are above, it is transferring into our hearts and changing who we are. So in the midst of seeking the things that are above, seeking the heart of God, He is radically changing our hearts for us and for others. And we begin to get the sense that, that we will not desperately desire to see injustice come to an end until we desperately desire to behold the face of God, to focus on Him, and to not move off of that posture. We are casual Christians. We casually pander about holiness. We casually pander about and, and occasionally desire to see injustice end when it raises to a level that it begins to affect us or we can no longer deny it because to do so would make us a bigot. To do so would make us to be a hypocrite on a level that we're, not, we're no longer willing to endure. But listen to this. When you are a Christian, God has already affected holiness in you. He has changed and transformed your heart such that your heart cannot be satisfied as long as injustice lives. And so when we see injustice, if you're seeking the face of God, if you're seeking the things that are above, God is actively working in you, His Holy Spirit, to, to create this sense of dissatisfaction. And what creates a sense of satisfaction in the midst of these things is a radical apathy we must put to death, not just in us, but in our friends and in our churches and in our community. You've heard the phrase, and I've heard it, uh, especially when I started seminary, this idea that, oh, so-and-so is too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. I'm going to tell you this. Listen, if you're not heavenly-minded, you'll be of no earthly good. What Paul writes here and says, we must be heavenly-minded if we are to be of any earthly consequence. We must be. And so we need to be those as we evaluate our time, as we evaluate our money, as we evaluate those, those things that we actively give ourselves to. And we're asking ourselves the question, what in the world am I seeking? 
Where is my energy being spent? Where is my time being given? What is my heart pursuing? And God will begin to reveal these things to you. And so we're asking ourselves the question, God, am I seeking justice? As justice looks in heaven. Am I seeking to bring an end to tears? Am I seeking to bring an end to war? Am I seeking to bring an end to poverty? Am I seeking to bring an end to injustice? And he'll say to us occasionally, it seems like these things bother you. But it doesn't seem like you're doing anything to affect them. It seems like these things have irritated and agitated you to the point that you're writing something. The case where occasionally you'll say something in a safe crowd where you think that everybody will support you. But you are not an advocate for justice. You're merely irritated when it affects you. Adversely. We don't get the option. We don't get the possibility of being a Christian while at the same time pursuing those things which solely gratify self. He tells us, seek the things that are above. And this should be our call. And this should be our hearts. And this should be the direction of our lives. Now listen to what he says. He says, they are the things that are above where Christ is. And what is Christ doing? He is seated at the right hand of God. So what the Apostle Paul does in the midst of these things is he reaches back into Psalm 110 and verse 1 where we see this amazing uh, messianic uh, reference to Jesus where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. We see this description of God's righteous right hand which is over and again referred to in, in Exodus 15, 6 and elsewhere, this display of God's strength. This display of his majesty, this place of prominence, and this place of special significance. And this is where Christ sits. Now flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. Or tap there. It's quieter. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now listen to what he says. He says, after making purification for sins, so after Jesus made purification for sins, after he took on sin and death, he took the consequence of your sin and my sin on himself, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So what does that give us this picture of? It gives us this picture that at the end of making an atonement for your sin and for my sin, there was nothing left for Jesus to do. So he goes over and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Now if Jesus still stands, if he's still kind of standing, uh, waiting in the wings and getting ready to do something, it gives us the impression that you and I have to do something. It gives us the sense that Justin is wayward and there's still something that he has to make up and it, because of his sinfulness. It gives us the sense that Jesse is wayward. Well, we believe that, but let's go back over here. And, and he still has to do something on the basis of his sinfulness. But what we get the picture of in the Bible is that whether or not he feels that way, there is in reality nothing he can do to add to his holiness. Why? Because Christ has sat down. He's already done all that he needs to do. In his death on the cross and God raising him up from the dead, he merits, he earns, and then he bestows upon Jesse and Justin tremendous asset of holiness. An inexhaustible supply of holiness given to them by Jesus. Not on the basis of any good work they've done. Or else, in reality, they'd have some reason to boast. But in actuality, we recognize that all their boasting and all their striving is pointless and empty. This is freeing. 
This doesn't leave us at this point of devastation thinking, yes, but could I? Yes, but mustn't I? Listen, if we're supposed to seek because in seeking we're made holy, we are on a treadmill that will never end. Then God is evil and capricious. If it's in seeking that we're made holy, we're never going to get there because our hearts are infinitely wicked and wayward. It's not in seeking that we're made holy. It's because we've been made holy, our hearts have been enabled to seek. This is terrifically freeing. He says that you are to seek. In verse 2, he says, set your minds on the things that are above. And then he pairs it. He says, not on the things that are on earth. Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 6 in verses 19 through 21 gives us a sense of kind of what our thinking and how it impacts us. He says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth or rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. Some of us in a desire to make the world better. And I think this is an earnest desire. And this is born out of a pure desire to see things be better. Somewhere along the line, we have exchanged this idea of advancing God's kingdom. And we bought into advancing our own ideology. And we've exchanged this idea of of making this world look more like heaven and and, and preparing the hearts of men to receive Christ. We've exchanged it instead for making this world the best possible thing it could be. We will be dissatisfied with heaven because we feel like earth could have been so much better. When we think on the things above and we compare it with the things on earth, You compare this heavenly vision that John gives us in Revelation 21. He says, neither will there be tears. There will be any mourning. There is no cause for mourning when God comes in and he recreates heaven and he recreates earth. There's no cause for anguish. Injustice cannot thrive in that place. Wrong cannot be done in that place. And we think on that. And we're caught up in this persistence of of, of allowing God to change our hearts and transform our desires and to give us this heavenly picture of what we would like our neighborhoods to be like, of what we would like our community to be like when we find ourselves in the midst of this thought pattern. God's going to set you free here and now. But as long as your primary focus as long as your primary focus starts with my comfort, my wealth, my success, you're never going to give yourself to the vision that God would have you to have. You're never going to be impactful. You're never going to be permanently successful according to the gospel. Why? We must first give ourselves to the vision that God has for us before we are ready to be at work in the here and now. He says, think on the things above, not the things of the earth. We repeatedly see in the midst of these things, Jesus' ethic for the kingdom is decidedly upside down. He says, rejoice when you're persecuted, when others ridicule and mock you. 
He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. And we see these things and we think the meek just need a sense, a better sense of self-esteem. We think the weak just need to spend some time at, at, at the core. We think that all these things can be fixed if we would give ourselves to a proper regiment. And what does he say? He says, think on the things that are above. Listen, we just spent the last couple of days working on our city, trying to make it a better place. And so some of us have, have graciously surrendered up our bodies to be feasted upon by chiggers. Others of us have lavished poison ivy on ourselves. Other, others of us have walked through pairs of tennis shoes and sweat. And, 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 and praise God, one of my sons through doing this and picking up trash along Wesley Street has the, made the bold proclamation that he won't smoke. Right? There you go. It only took 1,324 cigarette butts. He was really leaning towards it. I mean, these are good things that we're doing. But if you're joining in this work and we're doing this work out of some misguided notion that doing this is going to usher in the eschaton, if somehow doing this is going to make this heaven on earth recognized, injustice still stands. And we're never going to be in this for the long haul. We're never going to be about this for maximum impact if we're not continually being replenished by seeking the things that are above instead of seeing the things that are here and now. Because when we see things that are here and now, it's devastating. When we surrender our hearts to wanting to use a political machine to make this world a better place, we are setting ourselves up for failure. 14 of the last 18 Supreme Court justices were placed there by Republicans, and this is where we are. But some of us have set our hearts and our dreams and our affections that if we just elect the right people, we can actually make this the best place it can be. Should we elect morons? No. Should we elect people that are morally bankrupt? No. But should we set our hopes and dreams on that? Please, God, don't let it be so. Do you see the difference? On the one hand, we can be responsible without so investing our hopes and dreams in this reality and thinking if we could just have this legislated this way, if we could just get this person in this spot this way, then, then the world would be a happy place. Then the world would be a better place. Christian, God gave us the mechanism for recreating the world and making it the way that he wanted it to be. And it's in Christ's victory. So when we call people and ask them, would you follow Jesus? Would you submit yourself to him? Would you confess that you're a sinner? We are asking them to come and die to self. And we have to be ready to come and die to self. We will not be raised with him if we are not willing to die with him. We've got to die to our hopes and dreams for what this place could be. We live and we hope in a reality that's situated in Revelation 21, that when Christ appears, he sets all things right. And we recognize that as we go out and as we encounter our neighbors, they are seeking to advance a reality and an ideology that is diametrically opposed to Christ ruling and reigning in their hearts. And so when we come to them and we see people that, that, that advocate for abortion, when we see people that advocate for a different view of the family, when we see people that, that have different views that we would say, we're not sure how this matches up, how this aligns itself with biblical, robust Christianity, 
our hearts are broken for them. Because we've spent time seeking the things that are above. Because we've spent time thinking on the things that are above. And we want their heart and our actions to align themselves with those things that are above where Christ is. And I want to see my lost friends and family come to know Jesus. I don't want to see myself win an argument. I don't want to see them vote the way that I do. I don't want to see primarily them change their view on any one of a hundred different political stands. I want to see them come to know Jesus because I know that when they come to know Jesus, he'll change their heart. He'll bring them in line with this same idea of seeking the things that are above, not the things of this earth. The things of this earth are passing, they are fleeting, they're temporary. But they're so beautiful. They're so close. And they're right here in our hands. And if we just work a little bit harder, we'll have them. If we just strive a little bit harder, we can make them our own. Man, I pray that God does not let you grab a hold of them. But he so destroys your appetite for the weak, anemic, failing, temporary, transitory, ephemeral things of this world, that he makes your heart beat, that he allows your lungs to cry out, that he allows your life to be lived for those things that are unpassing, for those things that are eternal, for those things of true weight and significance. Now, why in the world do we have to do these things? They sound exhausting, and frankly, on a lot of days, they sound unpleasant. Look at verse 3. This is why we are caught up in this. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you are a Christian, you have already died to yourself. And your life is no longer yours. You no longer get to mandate where your life is going. You no longer get to to say, this is what I want to do. And, And God, you just get to wait. If you are a Christian, you have died. And who you are really is with Christ and God. The truest sense of who you are has not yet been revealed. You can't even begin to know and understand the limits, the far-extending circumference of your holiness. You can't even begin to see these things. Why? Because the true form of who you are is in Christ with God. And God has purposed it this way. He recognizes in our finite minds, in our finite expressions, we couldn't truly come to understand these things. But he says, but when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He says, but our citizenship is from heaven, and from it we await a Savior, The Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. We await a reality, a heavenly reality. Paul wants us to understand that all the things you look around and mourn. All the things you look around and are broken over. They're passing. Every statue you look around and say, why would they tear that statue down? 
everything you look around and say, I, I, that, that's going to last forever, it is passing and it is fleeting. When you look at your own body and your own health, it's passing and it's fleeting. When you think of your hopes for your children, it's passing and it's fleeting. When you think about every future endeavor you're going to give yourself and your energy to, it's passing and it's fleeting. But the ultimate reality still awaits. And so there's hope. We don't give ourselves to despair when we see the world heading in a direction that we would rather it not. We don't give ourselves to uninterrupted sadness when we see injustice rule and reign. And these temporary setbacks and the evidence and the presence of injustice in this world and of evil in this world has never been a cause for Christians to pull back. But it's a call for Christians to radically reinvest. Why? Because our hope is unassailable. Because our future is set. So in the midst of seeking the things that are above, in the midst of thinking on these things that are above, we find ourselves busily working in the here and now, knowing, knowing that many of us will die before we ever see good come about. Many of us will suffer loss. Many of us will be broken. And that was never our hope. Our hope is that on the day when he returns, he is going to show us this picture of who we really are. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Man, this is our hope in our future. If you sit here today and you say, that doesn't sound like much of a hope in a future. That doesn't sound like a promise that I want. Then it could be what you've staked your heart on is a salvation of the here and now instead of a salvation eternal in Christ. It could be that you're seeking the things of the earth and not the things that are above. Oh, that God would wreck our hearts that he would cause us to seek his heart and in so doing to live transformed lives in the here and now, awaiting the time when he's going to come and set everything right, awaiting the time when he's going to reveal us for what we really are, united in him, holy forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, focusing on these things can be difficult for us because we want to see reward now. We want to be satisfied now. We want to, some of us want to see things go back to how they used to be. Others of us have a view of the future that we're hoping to cause and affect. God, would you cause both of us to surrender ourselves to seeking the things that are above? Would you cause both of us to surrender ourselves to thinking on the things that are above? 
And Father, we pray for those who within the hearing of this have not yet submitted themselves to your Son. And they are good people. They've been pursuing goodness, hoping to attain to being good enough. God, would you remove the obstacle and the impediment of goodness? Would you cause them to surrender themselves to the love of your son, Jesus? In whom there is life, the forgiveness of sins, and holiness. We surrender these things to you and ask these things in your son's name. Amen.